welcome to Cinemaker. This is episode 38, Batman Begins, directed by Christopher Nolan. I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Mike Manzi. Oh. I'm Chris Mariello. I did not know we were doing that. Although, to be fair, you're both a little too gravelly for this movie. I was sort of surprised with, like, the relative level of acceptance of gravel in this movie. Yeah, it doesn't get there full on until the very end, but... He did lose his voice three times while making this movie, though, from from doing that that voice. But yeah, here we are. This is the uh, second, maybe third. How many Batman movies have been covered? Real Bad did Dawn of Justice, Real Bad did Justice League, and they did Suicide Squad, which I guess has Batman in it. So I guess this is the fourth Batman movie we've covered, but the first good one. The first Batman movie proper, I'd say. The one that's just him. All him, all the time, 100%. Although, he doesn't show up until an hour and three minutes in, which is sort of surprising, but also kind of great. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, you know, you could have had Batman Triumphant covered, or Batman Unleashed, depending on which draft of the script, because the first choice for Scarecrow in that was one Nicolas Cage. Well, I have... I'm going to have to pepper these throughout, because there are... I think... I'm pretty sure. I feel reasonably confident saying this. Of all the movies we've covered, we're close to 600 now, if we're not over 600 by the time this comes out. This has got to have the most IMDb trivia of any movie we've covered. It has 219 items that I combed through for the good stuff. And there are so many examples of, this person was almost this. This person was almost this. And the one of note... Nicholas Cage not in here, that's worth noting, so thank you for pointing that out, Chris, was that Keanu Reeves was considered for the role of Batman, and even expressed interest in the press when speaking about it, and he was also considered, which I did not know, to play Bruce Wayne and Batman in Batman Forever. So he's been in that Batman wheelhouse for, I guess, a decade at this point, really, but we almost had, I guess, a Batman movie in Cage Club, and also now almost a Batman movie in Keanu Club, too. That's amazing. I don't recall ever hearing that Keanu was ever up for that, but we tried to recast him as a Batman villain most recently on some of our shows and I think that's that is a great fit for him but wow that's cool that's crazy speaking of the um the CCCU that is the the Cage Club Connected Universe mm-hmm. we mention the connection um within this own show uh, in regards to Insomnia just to do some errata before we move on entirely did you notice who the producers of Insomnia were oh it was George Clooney Oh, yeah. And Steven Soderbergh. I don't think we mentioned that, did we? We did not. I I made a note of it in my Word doc, and I just did not. Yeah, that credit came up and went down, and it just went in and out of my head for some reason. (laughs) You know, I noticed the producer on every one of these movies is Emma Thomas, who is his wife, so she's always there. I noticed that on all of these, but that was surprising. But yeah, we did not connect that, which, you know, shame, shame, shame on us. But I think, Mike, it might not be notable that Keanu was considered for this because when we eventually go through everybody was considered, it's basically if you are a white dude in Hollywood, you were considered for this at some point. One of those lists. The only major casting rumor that I always heard throughout the years was that Howard Stern wanted to play the Scarecrow or something in that nature. Whoa. No, that's not. I did not read that in this, but I believe that. Oh, okay. But I think that was back in the Schumacher verse when that was happening. That would have owned honestly like that would have been extremely cool uh, especially in the weirdo schumacher uh, especially once he got entirely out of the shadow of tim burton because spoilers uh, not spoilers but just a fucking hot take fact um, batman robin is not even the worst of the original batman franchise it is batman forever by far 
Batman and Robin at least has its own unique identity, even if it's a really dumb, campy one. Holy rusted metal, Batman. Yeah, I almost consider those to be sort of the modern children film versions of Batman. Like, my nephew loves those movies when he was, like, six and seven. Like, those were his Batman films, and he's slowly going backwards through the uh, the Tim Burton ones, and, you know, in maybe, like, five or six more years, he'll get to these or something. Yeah, you'll never, you'll never tell me that Batman and Robin is not at least fun to watch, whereas Batman Forever is just fucking intolerable with Jim Carrey bebopping and scatting all over the place. This movie here today, Batman Begins from 2005. I said, oh yeah, that is why we're here. This is the first time I've watched it since the DCEU. I think I've probably seen The Dark Knight, or at least parts of The Dark Knight since I've seen like Dawn of Justice and stuff. And I was sort of watching with that lens, and there's a lot in here that is not heavy-handed is the wrong word. I don't want to use that like as an insult, but just like it's a very serious, very somber movie at times. But there's times throughout this entire movie, like in every scene, where there are like asides and jokes and, if not levity, moments of character, where I don't want to use this platform as another platform just to shit on the DCEU because we don't need to do that. But there was a really, really good Nerdwriter video which was compared Marvel's action scenes to DC's action scenes in the new DC movies. And there's a lot of different problems, but like it sort of boils down to two big things. Number one, in the new movies, everybody just punches everybody, which is boring as hell. And number two, all of the like one-liners, like when there's like a pause in the action, all the DC characters are like, you're going to regret this, you're going to pay for this. And the Marvel characters like actually have like quips, and, like they're not always like clever or funny, but they're like moments of character. And this sort of, I think, falls in between those two realms that it does take itself very seriously like these are definitely more serious movies I think than the MCU but it also feels fun like it feels like the people writing it had fun it feels like the people acting in it had fun it feels fun to watch like even when there's like corny ass lines like Jim Gordon saying about the Batmobile oh I have got to get me one of those it's like ugh but also it's kind of fun like it just I was really this time through very cognizant very aware of the tone because you know we've talked about Christopher Nolan as like sort of a serious but approachable and I think this falls right in there like these are serious Batman movies they are a far cry from Batman and Robin but they are not so far down the Batwell that it's you know it's devoid of all humor which I think is a really difficult sweet spot to be in but also almost maybe the best place to be in yeah I hadn't seen this movie in its entirety in a long time either and I was kind of blown away by how great it is to be honest and like not just for a comic book character movie, but as a movie. Like, that's something that I felt leaving it the first time when I saw it in theaters. Is like, if he never dressed up like a Batman, but just was sort of out there, you know, in street clothes or something, like, this movie would still rule. Like, it's still got that effect to it. So, I think what this version of Batman really did that we're still, that it just had, like, this seismic ripple effect throughout especially comic book movies, but movies in general, I think, is that it went for the very grounded and dramatic approach for it. You know, it was like, let's just just try and make it a movie first and foremost. And then it's like, oh, but it still comes from the world of comic books. So we want to have touches of levity and all of that sort of fantastical element. So he will still dress up as a bat. There will still be, you know, the scarecrow. There is sort of a uh, third act giant 
chase set piece that you'll get that, you know, but they're in here with a very sort of light touch or kind of like with a master stroke in a way. They never sort of bleed over into each other. Like if it's a tray of food, they never touch, you know, it's weird. It's it's like there's, a, there's just a great balance and a symmetry in this film as far as like tone and vibe. And I think the fact that at least I find Batman to be super cool, the idea that there's an actually like a really good story going on here behind it and I'm learning new things about him um, even things I knew from comics that are told in new and interesting ways that are actually working like I am just like super happy watching this thing and, and blown away and just really impressed by just what they're able to accomplish with this character like when this came out people started taking Batman seriously again they understood what else it could be that there was still room for it to grow and I think a big part of that actually comes from well, before I say what I'm going to say, I think we have to look at the context of superhero films at this time. They are going for the comic book aesthetic and the feel, kind of still transitioning off of the Batman and Robin and into your Spider-Man one, X-Men one. I don't know if the Hulk has happened yet, which is the most literal attempt at transferring comics to film, but they are still very bright. They're very colorful. They are very cartoony. They're very idealistic, straight down to Spider-Man, um, making a point in its last shot to say, hey, this is a world where 9-11 happened, folks. You know, go home happy. So this is introducing the real world to Batman instead of the other way around, which I think a lot of these superhero movies were doing at the time. And Nolan's first, as you called it, a masterstroke, I think his first, yeah, maybe masterstroke in regards to that is knowing that he needed another screenwriter on this and twisting the arm of David Goyer to be that second screenwriter who wrote Blade, which is maybe the least comic booky of all of the comic book adaptations at this time. It's interesting because I think I mentioned in one of our episodes, maybe, but I think I might have mentioned that I'm not a huge fan of Goyer, but watching some of the behind the scenes of this, I've really sort of come around to him and appreciated what Nolan said, where he's like, kind of like me, like, I'm a huge fan of Batman, but I don't know every single thing about him. Like, I can't really geek out about him on a, on a level I can with other comic book guys, you know, but I love him. But Goyer seems like a guy who it's just in his blood like he just seems to know every the ins and outs of this character so that was a really smart move for him i'm glad that he didn't have to do everything himself that's something we saw with soderbergh too where he would bring in other screenwriters when he wanted to explore things he didn't know you know enough about or something like he could trust someone else to see his vision through in that way what i think is also really interesting this a lot of this comes from the imdb trivia is that it felt like Christian Bale and Christopher Nolan, and I'm also sure David Goyer, and it seemed like just about everyone of importance involved in this all came to this project with the intention of sort of reversing course of where Batman was at this time. Like, it felt like everybody was like, this should be great, and it's not right now, and we all have ways to do it better. And I think what's really remarkable is that it all comes together in a way that works really well. Like, there is one thing, Christian Bale apparently wanted to play Batman, not just as, like, a regular guy, but as this guy who was, like, filled with rage, and he came to the audition and, like, just did that, and he was, like, he, I think he was, like, afraid of what Christopher Nolan might, might think, or if he wasn't, like, he wasn't sure if he's gonna be on board or not, and Christopher Nolan was just, like, thrilled with that idea, and it just feels like this sort of, like, wonderful alchemy of, like, a lot of people saying, like, oh, no, 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 look what happened, like, just 15 years ago, we had Batman 89 and Batman Returns, and then we, 
went to Batman Forever and Batman and Robin. Like, what is happening to this? Especially now that Spider-Man's already out and X-Men's already out and people care about these things. And so for all these different moving pieces to come together in a way that works as well as it does and establish Batman as the superhero... Marvel, in every way, is bigger than DC. Like, they're more effective in their movies. The people know more Marvel heroes than DC heroes. But, like, if you name one guy, like, it's Batman. Like, it's not even close. Like, it's Batman, and then there's a gap, and then there's probably a bunch of Marvel guys. And, like, these movies, I think, are a big reason, because they're just so good. They came at the right time, in the right way, and there's people that you know, and there's people that you necessarily didn't know, and it all just works together so well. There's a lot of different Batman stuff in popular culture. I mean, we've had so many different Batman in the last 20 years, but like, I think it's this that is like, Batman is big because of Nolan and Bale. When this came out, this for me became the definitive Batman, you know, like uh, even having brushed up on some of his different origins and things, I'm like, the, the pieces here fit together so well, like what they did. We talk about, especially in like Memento, how he's like a puzzle filmmaker sometimes. And I feel like he did that here with the story, just in the way that characters reveal stuff. And in, you know, the actual uh, plot and dialogue, it was just riveting. Like, I think that's another, like they really reset the bar all around and they did it with a hero without any superpowers. One that is inherently dark because of the city he comes from and the past that he's dealing with. You know, he is a billionaire, but inside he's more like regular everyday people. Like people are angry. People get taken advantage of. Like they wish that they could just like be Batman sometimes. And like, I think like that has something to do with it. And he has like a support group. He's not even doing it himself. So there's like all these little things going on with him as an actual character that's really fleshed out in this movie too that I think resonated with people that said like, look, he's not out there on his own. He does need help and he uses help. And I think that's a really cool angle about this character that they got to with these with these movies. Before we just sort of had Alfred, then we had Robin and it wasn't really fleshed out all that much. But here, Commissioner Gordon is like, you know, he's really in this movie. He's not just playing the background. He's like a major character. And that was just a really smart thing to do with this is to sort of say we don't even need Batman himself for an hour and we can build up all these other elements and it just really helps support Batman himself. And I think what is really smart about the way that they write this Bruce Wayne and Batman is that this is now, at least in my eyes, four for four in Christopher Nolan movies that it's starring a guy who's like haunted by his past and trying to get by it. You know what I mean? Like he feels relatable. He's not just a billionaire who lost his parents who now fights crime. It's like he has these specific traumas that we see and he's doing whatever he can to exercise those demons essentially. And it feels, even though none of us are at all, pretty much like at all, at all, at all, like Bruce Wayne, he feels like a guy that we could be or could know or whatever because of the way that his character is written. Something that Nolan does here that's really interesting, and I, and I know I brought up the context of comic films at the time, I also want to discuss it in the context of Batman films that have come before it, because I think as much of a, I've talked a lot on this, on the Cinemaker season already, about how I really feel like this movie still feels like it slipped from a different universe, that it almost shouldn't exist. I think there's a lot of parallels. Um, I, I believe Mike mentioned how everything and everyone kind of fell into place. A lot of parallels with the 89 Tim Burton Batman film where everything kind of fell into place. And that was a young upstart director who was kind of given carte blanche with a long established character. And I mean, can you imagine if there was Twitter and the internet when they cast Mr. Mom as Batman? 
Oh, let me just tell you real quick, just having been a kid there, without the internet, it was huge. People were outraged. Like, it, you know, it was basically the reaction of Twitter without Twitter. Just real quick, I don't, I don't want to derail you, Chris, but at one point, the studio's first choice for Batman for this was Ashton Kutcher. Yes. And that, the way that IMDb writes about that, which I'm sure they compare it to to Michael Keaton were just like, oh, no, no, like, we don't want to go through that. And apparently, Christopher Nolan was like, no, that's not my Batman, and the studio backed off. But, like, we almost could have had that again. Like, that would have been bananas. Well, we saw it with Heath Ledger before we saw any any inkling of what would have become. We had jokes about Brokeback Batman and, oh, they cast 10 Things I Hate About You for the Joker. Like, it's going to be terrible. What is he thinking? I'm hesitant to say, oh, this would have been terrible. You can find screen tests from the behind-the-scenes stuff of both Killian Murphy and some dude with an extremely Welsh name, E-O-I-N, well, Ian David or something like that, Davis. And both of their screen tests are abhorrent. They're just, they're absolutely terrible. It seems like a guy in a suit versus somebody embodying a character. So I really can't imagine many other people other than Christian Bale at the time really, really nailing this. Like, he's just so superior in his screen test, which um, humorously, as a favor to the casting person at the time, had Amy Adams in the uh, Rachel Dawes role. And so I think what we were talking about, at this point, the superhero film is even more safe. So the 89 one, and because we wouldn't have this without the 89 one, was an even bigger gamble because they did throw so much into that and with such an unknown cast and director. I mean, Nicholson is probably the only established there. At the time, maybe Prince is the second most established at that time. Superhero movies were abject failures at that point. Superman was on four, which was just, you know, nuclear man, come on. I mean, all of Marvel's ventures had been spectacular failures, a complete 180 of now. Captain America and Fantastic Four were embarrassments. I think there are a lot of parallels with how this movie came to be with um, 89 and with 2005. And um, someone was mentioning Christopher Nolan taking this and how he did it. I think he's the first director to not see Batman as a vehicle for a style that they want to experiment with. Burton really went for that gothic man who laughs, cabinet of Dr. Caligari, gothic horror feel for the aesthetics of the movie and Schumacher went for Neon Camp. Nolan went for, he stayed in his lane. He very much adapts the style and the color palette that we have seen throughout his movies previously to the world of Gotham, which I think helps a lot in this movie being what it ended up being. So now, Chris, I don't know if you had time or I don't know if you found anything. You said on the Insomnia episode, you're going to try to figure out why they gave Christopher Nolan this movie. And there was nothing in the trivia about that. I have a handful of directors that were attached, including one that seemed very close to actually doing it. But did you get any sense of like why he was given this movie after the movies that don't necessarily align? Because we, we talked a lot in Insomnia about like the way that things work now that you, you do like a small indie movie and you're just given the keys to Jurassic World. Did you find anything out about why he was allowed to do this? It really comes down to the fact that he had a really great, what was slightly longer than an elevator pitch. I mean, him and Goyer had worked it out and they had, they were developing some storyboarding at the time as well, which they could use to kind of show their idea, their vision. And a lot of it really just comes down to, I guess, Nolan is really fucking charming and they trusted him with this. And I think there was kind of this sense of, well, can't fuck it up any worse. But no, there's nothing, there's no single thing where any executive said, we knew this was our guy when he said that he wanted to make this in the real world and that the Batmobile should be a tank. There was like no real moment like that in any of the behind the scenes stuff. It really just came down to his vision and them saying, fuck it. Yeah, 
I don't know if you saw this or Mike, I don't know if you remember hearing this, but there's a couple different people. The one that most interesting to me is that the Wachowskis were approached to do this and they even wrote their own treatment, but then eventually decided that they would rather go do the Matrix sequels instead of doing this movie or this trilogy or whatever. Because I also don't, I don't know if this was ever envisioned as a trilogy. I, I read that Christopher Nolan envisioned this as a trilogy. He, like, he had this like arc set up. I don't know if Warner was pitching it as a trilogy or just like a standalone movie or whatever, but I think to Christopher Nolan, he was like, this is going to be a trilogy. So maybe that also played in the fact, who knows? But the one that was apparently the closest was Darren Aronofsky, and he was going to write the movie based on Batman Year One, and he brought in Frank Miller to write the screenplay. Nobody's sure why this fell through, but speculation says that his script, which included making Alfred an African-American mechanic named Big Al, and that the Batmobile was a souped-up Lincoln town car and Bruce Wayne was homeless, and it felt like, just in reading those things, among other stuff, it was just too much of a departure from, I guess, the Batman that people knew or maybe knew or thought they knew, and so that fell through. But it felt like he was probably pretty close to like actually beginning the process of making this movie, and then Warner was like, no, no, no. And then Christopher Nolan came in. That's interesting about Aronofsky. I remember hearing about that and going, that would be an awesome movie. It just seems like it's a cool take, but it just seems like going a little too far. I'm surprised Nolan didn't go into the room and go, I want to do Batman's origin. And like, say, I have this idea, Batman Begins. We've never really seen it on screen before. You know, when you think about it now, it's kind of like the obvious choice. It's like the only place they hadn't really gone. And if you're going to reboot it or get back into it, that just seems like the perfect place to start. At the time, I don't, I didn't really know Christian Bale from anyone, really. I knew him vaguely from American Psycho, so I didn't expect him to be like a hero, I guess, but I think I was lucky because he was sort of like a blank slate to me, so I could see him as Batman Bruce Wayne a lot more. I was just able to like imprint that on him. He was only 30. Like, he's the youngest guy to ever play Batman. Like, he was young. And like, I think even in this movie, like, Bruce has a 30th birthday party, so like, he's due to the age in this movie, too, but like, everybody else I think was like 36, 38, or older when they first started playing Batman and he was 30 which like you know I'm 30 like I can't I'm not, I'm not Batman yeah I couldn't imagine when I was 30 running around like Batman I think I'm the age he was when he retired but there is a lot of that Frank Miller year one comic in here and that is just great I like that more than the Dark Knight Returns because it's the origin of Batman and it's different it's not all this Raja Ghoul stuff like that's been adapted from other places the Scarecrow's not there but his relationship with Gordon his first nights on the town him sort of evolving into the Batman, taking on the Mafia. That was what those issues were about. And I think they really did a great job of making that their own. When I saw this for the first time, there were some things that clicked with me that I felt should have earlier, like the fact that Batman's a ninja. That connection right there just made so much sense to me. Why he's able to flip off rooftops, dresses in black, sneaks away, you know, you never hear him. All these things fell into place. I remember the thing about his gauntlets being able to block swords. So there they're not just to look cool. They're actually practical. It's just like another thing about Nolan where practicality or the things he was doing with Memento and how he uses film techniques to get inside the character's head. I feel like he's also extremely good at explaining the origin of everyday things without even trying. Like the bat signal, the idea that he strung up a mob boss and it happened to yep. make like the bat symbol. Like that's just a, such a great example right there. Yeah, Nolan really rides a fine line that I've gone on record as saying I think tactical realism as in reading of films is really a waste of everybody's time except for the people who like jerk off to 
the gun movie database, which is a real thing. But when thinking about the earlier Batman films as well, there's always those silly moments where you're like, I don't need to know how Batman is fighting and how he became good at this, but oh, I guess he's just got something on his belt that unfreezes people who have been frozen by a freeze gun. He's just got that. Okay, that's what we're doing now. So he does strike this nice little balance between an extended cue scene from a James Bond movie where he sees how and why he gets all of his trinkets and not going too deep into it and still allowing for some of that comic book fantasticism throughout that is really necessary to still suspend your disbelief about a Batman. That stuff about Lucius Fox being Q, what helps is how it just feels so well baked into the story already that it doesn't come across as forced or as like a joke, you know? So like you can have fun with it when we return for the third time and Lucius is like, you can make a cape out of this. By that point, we're into it and we're embracing it because it just makes sense in the sense of the story. So that's fun that nothing really feels too forced here. And it also makes perfect sense that why does he have access to this? Oh, because his company, because Wayne Enterprises, makes military equipment. Of course he has access to, like, all the most high-tech stuff. Like, there's no, well, how did he get that, aside from being a billionaire? Well, I mean, he bought 10,000 cowls or whatever, because that's just how to avoid suspicion. But also, he just has all that stuff there, and Lucius is, like, cool. He's like, oh, yeah, like, I hate the guy who runs the place. And, of course, all the stuff is yours. We're going to play a little game. It's just a guessing game. Fortune Magazine, when this movie came out, estimated how much it cost to become Batman. I'll let you both have a blind guess, and I'll give you a hint if neither of you are close. How much do you think it costs to become Batman? This is interesting because in watching Begins this time and kind of how I'm going to look at the rest of the trilogy, since I've at least experienced it before, is through a political lens. And this film does have a lot to say about capitalism and the good billionaire and and things like that and class war, which I believe is going to carry over through the other trilogy. I got to assume that Batman has Bezos money. So I'm going to say, I'm going to go a little low and say a hundred billion. hundred billion? I was going to say a hundred million. I need to hold on, hold on. Wait, wait, wait. Because that's not even close to what the number is. For some reason, I thought Bezos's net worth was 300 billion. It is, is 140 billion. So had I remembered that, I probably would have gone to like 30 billion. But I still think that's probably way high. I got to find out what this actually was. Are you all stunned that Jeff Bezos is worth 140 billion dollars? A little. Well, yeah, you should be. There's also something online, how long would Batman last? Like how many days until his body broke completely like or something or he just couldn't walk anymore, which they sort of get around to in the third one, I think is like the amount of injury that Batman would sustain in real life. So he doesn't have Bezos money, is what you're saying. He's not worth $140 billion. Okay, so I can't find where this is from, but I think the thing is, like, if you want to get around like Batman, not live Bruce Wayne's lifestyle, if you just want to get around like Batman, what does that cost? Oh, so, like, owning a tumbler, having the costume, grappling around all the places... Because the thing that you're saying, there was a thing on Time.com, the money section, from two years ago that said it would be about $700 million to dress, drive, live, and train to be Batman. Wayne Manor's worth $137 million, and he drops $1.6 million annually in property taxes. I wasn't estimating Bruce Wayne's net worth. Like I'm sure he's a multi-billionaire with all that. I was just going by, yeah, what is he spending on Batman? Yeah, Chris, I'll, I'll let you give another guess, but just like to be, to actually feel physically be Batman. Okay. To get a cool suit and a couple of cool toys and enough Muay Thai training to like not be immediately murdered. Yes. Um, geez. Uh, so it's got to be more than like a movie costs. So I'm going to put it around, let's say 80 million. 
Mike? Uh, I'm sticking with 100. So the number is ridiculously low. Really? Okay, so we're, we're misinterpreting this in some way then. Again, this is IMDb trivia, which every time we do it on the Joe 2 podcast, we're just like, take it with a grain of salt because we have no idea. This might be like 12-year-old girls, 12-year-old boys writing, you know, random trivia. This thing, according to Fortune Magazine in 2005, said $3.5 million. Okay, that's stupid. I definitely remember seeing something about fictional billionaires and how much they're worth. This was from Forbes. Oh, it might be the same thing that you're referring to, but this hypothesizes that he is worth about $11.6 billion. When's that from? An article called Calculating Bruce Wayne's Worth and Cost to Become Batman from July 17th, 2012. Okay, because also in the IMDb trivia in 2006, so I guess the year after this, there was the Forbes Fictional 15, where Bruce Wayne was ranked as the seventh richest fictional character, and back then had a net worth of approximately $6.8 billion. Yes, so here's another one that has him at 9.2. So it's kind of silly and all over the place, but he is certainly a billionaire, which something I do appreciate is we've never really known why the Waynes are worth what they are because no one makes that much money being completely altruistic. And so it was interesting to see, and we still don't really see how the Waynes became the Waynes, especially since he's just a doctor. But we do find out that a lot of it now comes from the military industrial complex, which I, I did quite like that in his absence, they became Halliburton, essentially. They became like Stark Enterprise. Yeah, now, there, now there's a comic movie that has its politics down. They know what they're doing with what Tony Stark is. What Bruce Wayne represents, it's a very muddled politics, which I wonder if it's because it comes from British dude or not, but um, I'm going to try to avoid that for now because I want to wait till I see the rest of the trilogy to really go deeper into that. But yeah, I was left at times in this movie really wondering how the Waynes got all of their money. Straight down to, I loved Alfred's line about how your great-great-grandparents used this as part of the Underground Railroad to funnel slaves. That line reminded me so much of Get Out with being like, oh yeah, I would have voted for Obama a third time. They do so much to like kind of whitewash the Waynes as these like altruistic great billionaires, but like you don't make that much money without stomping on the head of some workers. And I think this movie kind of implies that they're part of why Gotham has gone to total shit because of class disparity. Again, which I really like. I like that this shows Gotham as more than just a set piece. It doesn't explicitly say, you're right, Like it doesn't explicitly say where the money came from. I just think it's very old money because there's that one scene where Bruce comes back and Alfred, and he's just like, I don't want to live here. Like, I don't want, like, my old room's fine. Like, I don't need the master suite. And Alfred's like, no, like, you're the man of the house now. And he's like, this manor has housed your family for six generations. And so, like, I'm sure that they've built it bigger and made it nicer over those six generations. But, like, they've been in this palace for probably 150 or 200 years. Like, I think it's just, like, old money. And that they've all done whatever they wanted to do, but, like, it's just sort of accumulating and accruing and everything, so... Yeah, that old money has to come from somewhere, whether it was, uh, you know, bootlegging, ironworks, something. There's there's definitely something nefarious to how the Waynes got their money that they, they've never brought up. I know they got to it in the comics at some point that there was, like, Bruce's... I think his dad's dad turned out to be not that great. Like, he was definitely doing some shady things and maybe was being considered a villain at the time. So that was... He had to confront his past and what his name actually meant. I don't know if they ever really get to that in in this trilogy, but I do think it's cool in the way that he's depicted as a rich person. It's almost, in a way, the classic high society snobbish sort of 1920s rich guy. Like, I feel like he would fit in at the Nick 
showy, like walking around that version in like 1900s New York City. And I like that. Like, I think you're right. He is very old money and he knows how to play that. It's like just this very shallow sort of presentation of a person and they're sitting around the table talking about Batman and they basically are just dismissing him as like a nut. So they're not really being portrayed as like super intellectual, but they are extremely influential, which just is kind of... That's very interesting. I think this is even before the term 1% really hit the zeitgeist hard, and that is the sort of vibe I'm getting from the rich Gothamite elite. These coastal elites. And I love the scene where he just buys the hotel because his dates want to swim in the pool that is happens to be in the restaurant. It's one of my favorite examples that we've had in a Batman film of Bruce Wayne being that millionaire playboy he is supposed to be. Um, I don't think we really get that with Affleck at all because it's an older Batman and it has no interest in really exploring Batman at all in those movies. But I do recall fondly the scene in a couple of scenes with Keaton in 89 where he talks about, like, I think there's one time he's like, I don't even know if I've ever been in this room in the Wayne Manor. So I do really like seeing more of the, the playboy Bruce Wayne. That duality is really important. And I did always think Bell. I never really knew how he'd be as a Batman when it was announced, but I knew he'd at least be a good Wayne from American Psycho. And uh turned out that was pretty accurate. Straight down to the scene, the apple falls very far from the tree or whatever when he flips out on his uh, birthday partiers, something I think everyone who's ever been at a party has, has wished they could do. Do you know who says that the apple falls very far from the tree? Do you know who that is? Is that Nolan's dad or something? Jonathan Nolan. I think it's the brother. Okay. Yeah. So... Also, just on that note, both of the main characters from following, or at least the female lead from following Lucy Russell and the male lead from following are both in this movie somewhere. I think Lucy Russell is in that scene where she's talking about, do we even need a Batman? Like The way that IMDb describes her, she's the woman in this movie with the most lines that isn't Katie Holmes. She's like the only other woman who actually speaks. So that's the woman from following. And then uh, the the main dude from following was the younger Gotham waterboard technicians who probably just has like a little bit part somewhere at the end. Yeah, he's the one when they're looking at the screens of all of the water vents blowing where like you see the countdown kind of the red dots approaching Wayne Manor he's the one who's not like the grizzled old union guy in that scene should we talk the cast should we break down the cast because there's some real gems in here and then there's someone who will be leaving this franchise because boy was she not good <laughs> I don't know if it's because she was bad. I think she elected not to return because she was getting married, in quotes, at the time to Tom Cruise, right? Wasn't that when this was all, that was all going down around that time? It's most certainly for the best. Katie Holmes seems to be one of the few people that she's fine in some scenes when, when they're in the car together. I think she's really good and she slaps him. I, I think that's one of the, the better scenes in the, in the film, actually. And they, they do have some good chemistry as well as her chemistry with Kelly Murphy is fantastic. But when she has to kind of deliver those comic book fortune cookie lines, I think she is really noticeably terrible. The uh, it's not who you are underneath, but what you do that defines you. Like, it sounds great coming from Batman, but yeah. Bruce? With her character, it's funny because, you know, they sort of do like three time skips here and we see teenage Bruce Wayne and he's still played by Christian Bale. I actually thought Katie Holmes was, you know, like she just feels like the teenage Rachel. Like they should have almost like had a third sort of older looking person play the more adult Rachel because I just feel like she just looks a little out of place in that sense. Maybe that's beneficial to the character. Like you sort of take her for granted a little bit just because she looks like not as tough as everybody. But then when she sort of wields the um, the taser, you know, and she like fights back and stuff, it's like, oh, okay, like 
like she's actually tough. You know, I was fooled because she looks like easy prey, but in fact, like you don't want to mess with her. I think ultimately what it is, it, it's the character shining through, and I think Maggie's going to play it a bit. Uh, is going to play it better in the next movie. But I do, I do like the character, so I'm glad that Rachel is here. Well, speaking of Maggie, just real quickly, was that David S. Goyer's first choice for Batman was Jake Gyllenhaal. He might still play Batman soon. He still might. He's still on the list. Yep. But then apparently he saw Christian Bale and was just like, oh, no, no, this is our guy. So for Batman, so here's the here's the list. I'm not going to go through because I don't have like all in order. Here's the list of people who were either auditioned or considered for Batman. Christian Bale, Joshua Jackson, Eon Bailey, Hugh Dancy, Billy Crudup, Cillian Murphy, Henry Cavill, who would go on to be Superman, Jake Gyllenhaal, David Duchovny, who was considered after he was considered for, I think, either Batman Forever or Batman and Robin. That's a total like Michael Keaton announcement right there. Like you wouldn't believe it till you see it, maybe. It could work, but you'd have to be convinced. I love him. Uh, Heath Ledger was considered. Obviously, we would know how where that's going to wind up. Oh, he was considered for Batman. Yeah. Oh, interesting. And and you said Cillian Murphy. That's cool that like he didn't get Batman, but he got to play Scarecrow in this. He's awesome as Scarecrow. I think he just really impressed Christopher Nolan. He's like, well, you're not Batman, but like I want to get you in this movie. He comes back in the second one for in the Dark Knight for like a minute too, and then he comes back in the third one. Yeah. For oh a yeah. Minute. And the other guy uh, who apparently turned down the role was Josh Hartnett, which, cool, good. I don't believe for a second that he was actually cast. Again, this is IMDb, who knows. But yeah, like we were saying, Christian Bale made this Batman his own. There's that scene in Neighbors, right, where Seth Rogen and Zac Efron are talking about who's your Batman. And Seth Rogen's talking about how his is Michael Keaton, but Zac Efron's is Christian Bale. And I think, like, for an entire generation, like, he's their Batman. And I think, you know, now there's two different Batman. There's Ben Affleck, who is either the best part of a movie or the worst part of a movie, depending on which movie you're watching. Or uh, you got Will Arnett as Lego Batman. Will Arnett's a great Batman. But, like, you know, for an entire generation, I think, like, Christian Bale is and forever will be Batman. Our dad's is definitely Adam West. That was my Batman growing up. I mean, I grew up on the reruns of the 60s series. It was always sort of Batmania in my house, to be honest. I used to watch, like, the Super Friends cartoon. And then even after the Burton movie came out, they had that amazing cartoon of Batman, the Batman Adventures. Like, that ran for four or five seasons. Really great storytelling in there. That's actually where I first sort of became intimately familiar with the Scarecrow character because I had always sort of played him off as just kind of, like, goofy. I didn't really like the guys who dressed up in full costume so much like that like Riddler he's just wearing a suit even though it's covered in question marks the Joker's wearing a suit the Penguin's wearing a suit like all these guys are just like sort of trumped up mob type guys but um, it wasn't until those episodes where I was just like okay this guy is like serious business like he is not messing around at all like everything about him is just terrifying really like all of his motivation and and you know his philosophy on people and and the way to control them with fear it's just it's a really great match to batman's origin too since that's what he's dealing with primarily is his fear and trying to control fear i didn't pick up on that it might not seem so subtle after you sit and watch it and go oh it's like the obvious villain but it's also like yeah it's the obvious villain like definitely use scarecrow and since you mentioned Kevin Conroy, who I think a lot of people might say, despite him just being a voice, is one of the definitive Batmans, it's crazy how much this interpretation of Batman in regards to his physicality kind of became the definitive version, because we don't get a lot of fighting in regards to Batman in the, I guess, the original Warner Brothers 
quadrilogy, we can call it, or whatever. I mean, the fighting in the 60s Batman, obviously, bam, pow, fantastic, wonderful, beautiful. We don't get a lot of fighting from him. We get a lot of gimmicky stuff. In 89, we, ba we basically get a boss rush when he's going up the, the church, and there's, there's not much in regards to fighting elsewhere. My favorite in the originals is probably when he beats up the circus in the opening scene of Returns. I think he does some fun stuff there, but otherwise... Not much in regards to Batman fighting in those. Here, we get this kind of Muay Thai MMA, jumping from place to place, using the shadows, quick punches. And that's going to be that as well as his bat whipping around and swooping down and lifting people up, really going to be a major influence on the Arkham series of video games that also kind of, if this laid the groundwork, this builds upon how Batman ideally should act and move and be as a physical unit. And it's so cool seeing that, looking back now, knowing that even the Affleck one kind of moves like that in a lot of regards. And I think that was so cool seeing where that begins, essentially. And uh, yeah, super cool seeing how he fights in this, swooping around and where they on the dock. That doc scene is fantastic. That's like a horror movie. Like, during that sequence, and then at the end, in the Narrows, in the poisonous smoke, I'm like, Christopher Nolan, how have you not made a front-to-back horror movie yet? But you've shown your abilities so clearly, and it's just so great how that is natural to the property of Batman. Like, Batman is scary. He's trying to scare him. Like, let's shoot this sequence like a horror movie. And it's great. Yeah, you're right. Like, he's got so much technique. He swoops in and grabs a guy. Like, he jumps down and knocks you out and gets out of there. And then he takes on, like, the six guys left. And and then when he's like interrogating the cop, like that scene, like that's one of my favorite scenes, like in all three trilogies, like the intimidation game is what he's playing, you know, like that first and foremost, it's like all these different tactics and different ways just to scare the shit out of these people so I could take them out. And this movie also uses, I don't know if it's called flash fighting or flash editing, but you actually, believe it or not, never see Batman land a punch. It's just all the way that it's cut and the way that it's shot. You don't actually see him like, even like Dark Knight and Dark Knight rises it's not that it's just this one but like you never see batman actually land a punch again according to imdb trivia just because of the way that it's shot and cut so that's also unique in that like you never see the actual it's, it's a very physical movie very like the physicality is there but it's it's also just so different I do think the action editing might be one of the negatives I would ding this movie for. It does feel a little too frantic at times. It's tough to even kind of figure out what the fuck is going on in some of the subway fight at the end, because that should feel more personal and more close quarters. I think it works for the dockyard fight. It doesn't really work for that. And I kind of chalk that up to it just being of the time. So that kind of shaky, quick action editing is in. I'm glad that that has kind of left because I think it's very unaffectual. I think you need to see impact. Jackie Chan and his movies always made it a point to show the impact of moves, which just lent so much to how physical a movie feels. This one does feel a little light considering he's a giant armored man flying around. But that said, in this, a lot of the fighting represents something else. So it gets it gets a pass. I'm interested to see how it is going forward. I too, I think throughout all three movies, I might have a little, a couple issues with the editing. They don't ruin the movie by any means, but there's always a moment or two in each movie where I'm just sort of caught off guard, like, oh, that's not the natural way I expected a movie to sort of cut from scene to scene. I mean, it's fine. It's cool. I think it's like interesting. It keeps you on your toes a little bit, but I totally agree with the shaky cam stuff. Like, I think that might be a byproduct of if the camera is moving like that, it's more quote unquote realistic. Like, I just think it got equated to be, you know, in that just because it's like documentary style, just that sort of feel. So I think uh, unfortunately it got over adapted to narrative filmmaking a little too much 
much. But I, I think it works like, you know, it could work once or twice early on, like when he's escaping the League of Shadows or when he's training because it's just very close quarters, but open it up by the end of the movie. So like, I think it would have been cooler if maybe they were fighting on top of the train so that you could sort of have like it all open and everything like that. But as it is, it's still cool. I think part of the point might also be he's Batman. He moves so fast, like you can't really see him or you can't like the idea is to be um, misdirected and caught off guard by maybe his cape or something. So I understand why they might have gone that direction. But yes, I agree. I would have I would have liked to just seen maybe like a, a shot that showed him connecting maybe four or five times before it cut or like, yeah, like a wide shot. I mean, he doesn't have to go down the hallway with a hammer like old boy or anything. Well, so two things. Number one, the average length of a shot in this movie is 1.9 seconds, which for a two hour and 20 minute movie means that there's a lot of shots. There's a lot of cuts in this movie. So that's number one. It does not feel like that. And Michael Bay movies do feel like that. You know what I mean? Like I think Michael Bay, the average shot is like four seconds or something like that. And you kind of feel it. But here I did not get that sense at all. So well, I think that also might be the flash editing or flash fighting or whatever. But in that scene at the end where they're fighting on the train, I had no problems with it because all I kept thinking was watching Al Pacino and Robin Williams <laughs> fight in Insomnia. And I'm like, oh, this is just so much better than that. Yeah, they're not two out-of-shape yeah. older men right. struggling on the ground of a cabin. <laughs> yeah. I love how Descartes, or at this point, Raja Ghul, I love how his mask is like the opposite of Ooh, Batman's yeah. mask. Like It just covers his mouth area. And I guess that might be a little foreshadowing to Bane, too, Bane, when we get yeah. around to him. Yeah. Real quick, there's one other one I didn't say that uh, another guy that was considered for Batman was Stephen Pasquale, who I think is just most known for Rescue Me, but he's also been on a bunch of other shows like uh, for a handful of episodes. But he was just sort of like a, another person considered for Bruce Wayne or Batman. But yeah, let's talk about villains. Let's talk about Henry Ducard and Ra's al Ghul and, you know, Ken Watanabe and Liam Neeson. Ken Watanabe, who would come back, I think, in Inception because of how impressed Christopher Nolan was by his literal gibberish that he made up as for his other language in this movie, but... Oh, that was a false tongue? It's a made-up language. Oh, cool. The subtitles call it Urdu, listed as Urdu, but it's just a language that he made up for the character, but they're good, and I mean, it's also going to... What I like about this, and I don't want to spend too much time on this, but, like, we know that the Ra's al Ghul storyline is going to come back in the third movie, so, like, I like that this envisioned as a trilogy, envisioned as a series, that this is going to set up and come back in a way, and it just, it feels like it's a strong villain for this movie. Yeah, I really like the way they adapted this character from the comic, because in the comic, he practically can live forever with the help of something called a Lazarus Pit, which just gives him, like, eternal youth, so it's really cool how they did the magic act of him not being him himself and having all these duplicates and doubles and sort of all that kind of thing. I think we'll get into that a little more in the next movie in The Prestige. But I was really fascinated with Ducard Raja Ghul this time around, especially after watching The Following, because here's another guy who sort of found someone, wants to shape him in his image, isn't telling him the whole story and expects him to basically do what he says at the end, except in this version, Bruce Wayne has a moral code of his own that he wants to adhere to, and he can kind of sense the deception right before, or right at the moment, he knows what to do when the opportunity presents itself. But I, I thought that was very interesting this time, that Nolan is exploring that some more. Something I do love before we get into into Scarecrow, and I, you know, I think Liam Neeson slash Ken Watanabe are great in their roles, um, and they do exactly what they have to do, and he's a great first villain. And additionally, what he, he represents in a political reading is also very interesting. What's important in this movie, and I think it might be the only Batman movie, not counting the DC EU ones because none of them are really Batman movies, all Batman movies fall into the trap of being not Batman movies, but villain movies. You know, you can't really argue, especially with 
2, 3, and 4 of the original one, that they're not movies about the villains that Batman happens to be in. I would say that's the same kind of with Dark Knight Rises, from what I remember, and I think Dark Knight probably gets very close if it isn't also that. This really does feel like a movie about Batman, and if you have to pick one for it to be that way, the origin story is probably correct, which is why I think it feels almost correct that Batman doesn't show up for an hour. Um, and these are also, they're villains that add to the Batman background. No other villain has really done that unless they're shoehorned into having have killed Batman's parents in that timeline. And also don't forget, and we're going to talk Killian Murphy a lot, I'm sure, because he is great. Don't forget Rucker Hauer and Tom Wilkinson, who are also fantastic as kind of the quote-unquote human villains throughout this as well. One last thing I really loved about the Raja Ghoul thing, though, like this time, is how they're sort of able to do this surrogate father figure thing too, which was really awesome. And I didn't even it didn't even occur to me until the very end of the movie, to be quite honest. I was like, holy shit! Ducard is like, I wanted a son, and Batman's like, I wanted a father, and then they ultimately reject each other in a very unexpected. Like you wouldn't think that they would reject like that, but it's it's really complex and interesting stuff that is coming across quickly and clearly even if you're not getting like the full implication it's there so it's just great how connected they were able to make Raja Ghul to Bruce Wayne like emotionally and it felt like they were not entirely casting out the concept of the immortality from uh, Ross Al Ghul. I do have to say, as a as a both a pedant and a, a fan of the Batman comics and cartoons, them calling him Ross instead of Raish does just kill me every time. But the fact that he either exists, and the movie isn't clear about this, but either he exists as a as a code name, and Ken Watanabe was. Rachel Ghoul, and now it's Liam Neeson, or that it's a, a Mandarin-esque thing where he's the smokescreen for the, the real person in charge, because you get that moment at the end where he's like, but, but Russell Ghoul is dead, and, you know, Liam Neeson says you can't kill an idea, blah, blah, it all kind of ties together with this, the symbol of what they're making and they're passing between the two. I do like that that is kind of this real-world version of how Ross can live forever, and I think that was a, a nice little nod to what that character initially was. Absolutely. It also shows you what Batman can ultimately be like, the, if Raja Ghoul, I think it's translated to demon's head or something. They never really say it, but I mean, if Raja Ghoul has ascended past human to symbol, you know, that's like yeah. almost foreshadowing where Bruce is going to end up. He's going to end up becoming more than a man, a symbol. Also, just quickly, while we're on the topic of Henry Ducard, Ra's al Ghul, Viggo Mortensen was considered for the role, and Daniel Day-Lewis was also approached for the role, but obviously it went to Liam Neeson instead, so... One of those is a massive pipe dream. I can't imagine Daniel Day-Lewis in this, but that would have been great. Both would be great, I think. I don't know if people were expecting that Liam Neeson would work here either, because from what I understood, this is like all pre-taken. He was like Qui-Gon Jinn, like he was just a gentle, nice guy in a lot of movies and stuff, so this was cool to see him really sort of take a turn, and when he turns he like really turns they're like the new world order these guys like i doubt the illuminati even though these people exist like the league of shadows is sculpting world history like i really dug that it that too sort of bled into the bond sort of overtones that i was starting to get like he's a megalomaniacal villain but not done in the kitschy campy sort of way done more in the daniel craig manner i guess you could say which aesthetically like is sort of similar to something like this so daniel craig bonds are also a direct kind of the gritty reboot this is this is the first one and you know it's funny you bring up the craig ones because those will absolutely be influenced by batman begins, what it does, and its success, and I guess where the previous iterations of the franchise, uh, what depths they had sunk to, because I think next year, it, well, in, in this time, so 2006, will be Casino Royale. It's after this. Also, one other quick Nolan action is that 
Guy Pierce was considered for the Henry Ducard role, but was deemed too young. That would have been cool. I think he would have been good there, too. I think he could have played Scarecrow just fine. I don't remember the entire list of people who were up for Scarecrow, but I know Ewan McGregor was one of them. Jeremy Davies was one of them as well, but I think he's even slightly too wiry for a role that requires someone to be wormy and wiry. I do love Killian Murphy here. I think this role requires someone who is attractive, charismatic, can appear well-spoken, but also has that insanity behind his beautiful, beautiful eyes. Joey, you know who I think could have played this well was uh, Stuart Townsend. <laughs> oh, so <laughs> that's not what I was. Gonna, that's not what I thought you were going to say at all. Because when Chris said the blue eyes, my heart went a flutter. Because you know, on the Joe Two podcast, on Zack Attack, Away from Material, and even Paul Walker and Too Fast Too Forever, we always talk about these actors with these beautiful blue eyes. And apparently, I read that Christopher Nolan was so infatuated with Celine Murphy's blue eyes that he kept coming up with ways for him to take his glasses off so he could like put this in the movie, like which I just I love. Like, I thought you were going to say, like, Zac Efron or, like, Ryan Gosling or Paul Walker. Like, they all would have been good. But what I also really like about the way that Slade Murphy plays Scarecrow is that he also has a vulnerability to him. Like, when Batman turns the gas on him, the, the fear toxin on him, he gets really freaked out. He's this menace. And especially if you've played, I don't remember if it's Arkham Asylum or Arkham City, where Scarecrow is, like, the big bad. They're like, you know Scarecrow can be terrifying. For him to just be, like, this guy who is menacing but also is basically just a scared boy at times is great. I also do, I do love, maybe my favorite moment in this movie is when Rachel tases him and he just starts like whimpering like a little scared like little puppy dog like he runs the whole gamut from like potentially the most menacing character in this movie to just this pitiable you know scared little kid it's one of my favorite rematches is that the first time Batman goes up against Scarecrow, he gets his ass kicked. Like, you know, he gets lit on fire, kicked out a window and drugged almost to death. He's out of commission for a few days. And then the second time Batman shows up, it's one of my favorite lines when Cillian Murphy takes mm-hmm. off his mask and he's like, it's the Batman. He knows what they're in for and shit. And Batman just knows too. So like he is not going to make a mistake this time and gives him a dose of his own medicine. And that's when you see Crane is like totally terrified. What I took it to be is like he's really afraid of what he's gotten himself into because I don't think he even knew Raja Ghul was going to destroy the city. They were just going to hold it for ransom, you know? He wasn't even in on it. So I think at that moment, there's like a deeper realization that, oh shit, I'm in over my head. Yeah, you mentioned the horror symbology and, and visuals throughout this movie. What Crane sees of the Batman when he is gassed, that kind of, that gargoyle that's just dripping black from his mouth is so fucking cool. There's so much cool design throughout this entire movie. I mentioned Insomnia that he's great at these subtle visual cues for storytelling, and we get them, you can be more obvious with them here since this is a comic book movie, and that's all comic books are, and he gets to be really explicit with those, and there's so much little cool tricks that he does throughout, especially with the toxin. Love that gargoyle. Love the dripping maggot mouth of the scarecrow. Love all of the weird skeleton designs of the of the cops and the criminals in the narrows. Yeah, great. Love it. Absolutely love it. Let's now talk about, if you don't mind, about Commissioner Gordon, or not Commissioner Gordon, I guess Detective Gordon, who becomes Lieutenant Gordon by the end. Isn't he, like, sergeant in this? I think he goes from sergeant to lieutenant. Okay, because apparently Christopher Nolan wanted to cast Chris Cooper as Gordon and put Gary Oldman as a bad guy, but then Chris Cooper wanted to spend time with his family, and so he wasn't in this movie, and they cast Gary Oldman as Gordon. And I think he's, like, he plays that guy, like, he still sort of has that appearance that, like, he could be kind of like a rat, even, like, 
like in the one point in the movie, he's like, I'm not a rat. And he just like, he fights back at the system. But like, he is that guy who like could be swayed, but stays true. He's like sort of the moral center of all of this. And he grows and evolves as the series goes on. I think he's really, really good in his role. I love Gordon in this movie. This is really the first time we're getting him too, to be quite honest. Like Gordon has been in previous Batmans, but he's just been there to sort of prick up the red phone and call him in to say there's a job to be done or whatever. And he's in and out of the picture. So I love that he's all fleshed out here. And, and yeah, he's in such a tough spot because like he won't take money, but he won't rat on anybody. But then again, there's no one to rat to in the first place. So I almost feel like move out of the city if you want to do your job. It's just very, it's cool that he's staying there. He's almost like what Batman would be if he wasn't a rich dude and just grew up to be a cop or something. Like he's doing the best he can in that situation. But yeah, man, he is pretty much here as the only good cop in this entire city. The only person that Bruce can go to. I think it works for a lot of the same reasons Liam Neeson did at the time. Liam Neeson was strictly an older, kind, dad-like figure, and Gary Oldman is the guy who screams a lot as a villain. So that turn works really well, and he is great. It helps that Commissioner Gordon, like you said, has essentially not been in any of these movies. Pat Hingle's version of him is like a baby Huey man-child whose job it is is to like blubber, and it's just pathetic all the way through. So this is really the first time we get a lot of Gordon, and I think the origin story is, is tough to tell, because so much needs to be reiterated for what that story wants to do, and this does need to really reinvent Gordon because of that damage that was done to him. It needs to retell the murder of the Waynes to remind people that this isn't the universe where the Joker did it. It needs to do a lot of those things, and it brings them back, and I think Gordon is one of the best examples of how this kind of takes that back and cements it into this universe, and I know that, you know, fellow Academy Award winner J.K. Simmons is the new Gordon in all these DCU ones, but I have literally no recollection of anything that Gordon does in any of those movies. I love the Batman network in this, between Rachel and Gordon, and how, how Batman is not just one man throughout that that can stop all this without having Batgirl and, and Robin, just other superheroes, how the people, so much of this story, again, Gotham and Batman are so interrelated, they are the same thing, essentially, in this trilogy, and roles being designated to actual humans and then being effective in this universe is so integral to what this trilogy is trying to do. Yeah, I, I totally agree. It's so crazy about his Bat League or like the team he puts together because like Ducard has that lesson too where you know he surrounded himself with like-minded individuals like to make himself a symbol and Bruce is going to do the same thing he basically took it literally like you have to be more than one man and he's like okay I'll get like three other guys and a woman to help me out I'll form my own league you know we'll be the opposite of them like we'll go out there using trust and friendship to take down bad guys and serve up real justice not just vigilante justice and not revenge because our intentions are pure. We're not coming from sort of like a rotten place. Like, we're not pessimists here. Like, we might look like it. We're very goth on this side, but we're actually quite optimistic about the future. And Batman's had that for the last couple of years. You know, I don't know about the comics all the way going back to what was going on at the time of the 89 Batman, but he's had non-superhero companions throughout. I mean, Gordon is one, but also, I guess, kind of non-superhero at this point. Uh, but Oracle is such a major part of Batman now, especially in the games that take so much from Batman Begins. It is important to show a world where it's not just superheroes punching each other in the face forever. Uh, you know, a problem of both of the Batman stories surrounding the Nolan trilogy on either end of it. Because that's what makes it feel real. Exactly. Otherwise, you're just dealing with gods that are punching each other in the face, and it gets really boring when you don't feel like there's any threat. Because sure, Batman's not going to die, but maybe Gordon will. Maybe 
Rachel will, maybe Joseph Gordon-Levitt will. Like, you don't know, and they do. I mean, no spoilers, I guess, but, you know, they really up those stakes in future movies. And you have to do that because we know that Batman's not going to die. You know, you have to make that symbol human in some way. It's interesting to me that I feel like I read or heard Nolan say Robin didn't really ever have a place in his Batman universe. I mean, we'll get there to a degree eventually because I feel like he would fit really well. Like, And I also feel like they were setting him up in this movie. You know, I really felt like, you know, Joffrey, the little actor who plays, who will grow up to play King Joffrey in Game of Thrones, like has two or three little interactions with Batman in the Narrows. And like that would have been a great little thread to pick up again, even if that's who Joseph Gordon-Levitt grew up to be, if that kid grew up to be the Joe Levitt character or whatever but yeah that's sort of just the one thing that I will we'll get to is just like I do I do miss Robin because I feel like Batman is a team and that would just be like a great extension of that it also kind of ties into what I was saying, you know, Batman's never going to die, but some of his circle might, and arguably one of the the most well-known or the most canonized Batman storylines does, you know, bring explicit harm to both Robin and Barbara Gordon slash Batgirl slash Oracle. So even just for that in the comics, that always kind of implies that Robin is quite necessary. You know, going back a second to making Batman feel real. I almost wish, although I'm not sure that I really want it, but there's a little bit of this movie where he's in that like sort of makeshift suit before, you know, Alfred and Lucius Fox put together his like $3 million suit or whatever it actually costs. He's sort of like that homegrown, it sort of looks like a catcher, chest protector, and just like, you know, the the makeshift mask and stuff. It reminded me a little bit of like the new Spider-Man where like Peter Parker has his homemade suit until Tony Stark buys him, you know, the custom fit suit or whatever. And I almost wonder if like we should have had more of that, but I also do like that he is full-blown Batman an hour in. But like, I feel like that also makes him feel more like a real guy. It's just like, oh, this is a guy who of course is richer than all of us, but at the same time, it's just like, what do I have around the house that I could go do this thing with and like it, it just feels in a way feels real it's so organic it's like a true evolution he has stages to putting his gear together it gets like more protection better and better in the next movie he'll have a full on new suit I love that he's just out there like testing himself too almost trial runs as Batman he's, he's dressed like a cat burglar so I was thinking of him as Catman at that time before he evolved to Batman that's just really smart and another thing that sort of made me wonder about too is um, that couldn't have been the only time he he went out looking like that and something we talked about with Nolan previously in the movies is just the sense of time passing this time I figured he was training with the League of Shadows for a few years or you know at least like two or three years or something and I just love that like we don't really know how long it takes him to get his gear together how many times he went out and did trial runs or any of that we just sort of see the core moments like the worst of times and the best of times basically it's just real economic storytelling too we get that in the Spider-Man movie from around the this time too where he basically just has the ski mask and the pants when he goes and fights Boonsaw and uh, I like it in Iron Man too when he's just in that clunky makeshift robot suit also um, Captain America where he's in like the vaudeville suit early on all of that I do love the evolution of the suit in these movies something I never even thought of until now the idea that the idea that it's not like Batman and Robin where I guess Uncle Alfred was just taking her measurements while she slept because he just had a fucking suit for her gross suit me up Uncle Alfred yeah it never really struck me how integral to the origin story the evolution of the suit kind of is and how much I love that and I'm glad it's here 
and there's the little moments, and I don't think I heard either of you say this, but I mean, I mentioned it before, but like, there's like the, the moments of humor where they buy the 10,000 cowls, and then Alfred's like, oh, like, they're not good. Like, don't fall on your head until we get the new replacements. Like, there are growing pains in this, and like, these growing pains are costing thousands of dollars or more than that. And the fact that like, it's just this evolution of we're going to get it right, but it's going to be a very expensive process to figure out what works. I like the economical storytelling. I like the evolution. It just, it just, it's little things that all add up to be something cool. And it doesn't feel so cynical as to being like, oh, now he's got Arctic attack bat suit and sky fire bat suit. And just like, it's not just like a toy line, you know? I also like how some of the humor is like kind of dark too. And I like that too, is like when Alfred picks him up with the jet and he's coming back to civilization and they're joking about how he was declared dead by his own company. And he's like, you could borrow the rolls anytime you want. It's like, you're joking about his death. That's just tactful, the way that they're able to do that. I just feel like that's some dark humor, and uh, it doesn't even feel like dark humor. Let's talk about, we sort of mentioned a little bit ago, I just want to mention who else was almost casting them, but let's talk about Batman's support group in Alfred and Fox. Sir Anthony Hopkins was offered the role of Alfred, but declined. I don't think he's, you know, we talked about the father story. I think the father story with Alfred is so important, and, you know, I don't want to interrupt you entirely, but I, I don't think he's quite fatherly enough. You know, he can't cast Hannibal Lecter as the caring butler, really. Maybe he could have been Falcone, um, but I don't know how good his American accent is. Well, most of the people in this movie are European guys playing American, so it all sort of gets there eventually. I think part of Alfred, too, just look-wise, like, that's the thing that's tricky about comic book movies that I feel like the industry's over coming, but definitely around this time, you know, you want to cast someone who looks close to the comic book character. I mean, if you look at Jim Gordon in the comics, he looks exactly mm -hmm. like Gary Oldman in this. If you look at Alfred, he looks exactly like Michael Caine. So, like, they really, I feel like they really fit the look, even, you know, this time around. I mean, even the new Alfred, even Jeremy Irons, like, to a degree, he's not wearing, you know, a suit or anything. He's in, like, for some reason, he's in military yeah. fatigues or something in those movies. <laughs> like, he's out of his fucking mind in those movies, and I love him in them, but very different Alfred they were going for. But at this time, yeah, I I think they nailed it with Michael Caine. Well, something I think that's interesting throughout this trilogy is how much of this movie, this movie and the trilogy in general, is centered, maybe isn't the right word, but needs Alfred. Because I talked about how Nolan manipulates and kind of pulls emotion from the audience, and I saw in an interview, Guillermo del Toro has called Christopher Nolan an emotional mathematician, which I think is super accurate and really astute. Alfred is really the guy who brings, like, the choking up moments throughout a lot of this. He drops those, I mentioned, I called them fortune cookies before, he drops the really emotional ones, you know, why do we fall down, you know, the things like that throughout the entire trilogy. And I guess, you know, if you haven't seen these, what, what are you doing? Slight spoilers for the third one. When you look at a movie, trying to figure out what it's saying or what it's about, you really need to look at the first and the last scenes. And the trilogy is bookended kind of through a lot of Alfred, like a lot of his perspective. And I feel like everything with Bruce Wayne, I don't think it's Bruce Wayne's story. I think it's Alfred's story, and I think it's Gotham's story. And Alfred is tied to Bruce, and Gotham is tied to Batman. I don't think this trilogy, despite it being a Batman trilogy, I think it kind of just uses him as a device, and it lets other people be the audience's eyes, and I think that's so cool. How many times, Mike, on other podcasts do you quote, I won't bury another Batman? It just ingrains in us. I really like that mindset, Chris. I like that it's, you know, Alfred's story, because I remember coming home from The Dark Knight, being blown away by so many things, but like, even in The Dark Knight, I was just like, oh my god. 
job. Michael Caine is just so good as Alfred. And I remember like that very vividly. Like that was like my big takeaway. Like he's just so good. And what's cool, according to IMDb at least, was that he thought Christopher Nolan was quote clever and really wanted to work with him, and so he worked with him on this movie, and then has been in every one of his movies since, or something like that. They work together well. He's great in this. But I do have a question for you. Was he living alone in Wayne Manor for like a decade while Bruce dicked off around the world? Yeah, didn't he say like everything was left to him? So he bequeathed like I guess the mansion, the roles, and a living wage or something. <laughs> My question isn't did he live in the mansion, but where in the mansion? Like did he stick to his servants' quarters or did he like sprawl out on the master bed? He probably had to roll around in the master bed. Oh, you know Alfred was smashing in that. Uh... That guy fucks. <laughs> yeah, he was bringing. He's former special forces. He was absolutely laying the accent thick in any part of Gotham. Some nights he was in the uh, the slums. Some night he was at the the hotels, and he was just bringing them back to the Wayne Manor and smashing hard for sure. So there is this sort of dating this, but I mean we're going to put this out relatively soon. But we are sort of in the heart of, or I guess the tail end of the heart of the whole Pete Davidson Ariana Grande saga of why are they dating? How long have they been dating? All this different stuff. And I read earlier this week, or maybe last week. This article, I don't know how I got here, but it was about big dick energy. I knew we were going to talk about big dick energy. BDE. BDE. Yeah. And big dick energy, it does not require you to have a big dick, but it's sort of yeah, like... Or a penis at all, really. Or a penis at all. But it's the swagger you have when the person you're with is just like essentially floored by your sexual prowess or you're so confident in your abilities or whatever. I feel like in this trilogy, Batman and Bruce Wayne don't have big dick energy. Like they're sort of imitating it. Like they're sort you know, he's got some, but like... Alfred, definite BD. <laughs> definite. Dude, metaphorical and literal Lucius Fox, big dick energy. Oh, uh, what I was going to say, yeah, and Alfred, when you find out, like, he's been on trips and vacations in the third movie, like, where he, who knows what he's getting up to out of Gotham City. I'm sure the Waynes have an island somewhere that they own, and he's just stocking with, you know, precious poon. And he's not the help there. He's like, he's king shit there, probably. So Lucius Fox apparently has never been in a live-action Batman before. He was only in something in, like, 1979. Like, he's been so pushed to the side in the world of Batman that I don't remember who it was. Somebody, like, didn't even know that Lucius Fox existed. But, you know, Lucius Fox was here, and he works really well here. You know, another connection to the network, in a way, Lawrence Fishburne was considered for the role. I guess that's just sort of, like, the distinguished black gentleman role of Lucius Fox, you know, Morgan Freeman, Lawrence Fishburne. But I think he would have been good, too. I, I can imagine sort of, you know, if the Wachowskis did this and put Lucius Fox in it like he would have been in there. I feel like there's just something about the pedigree they got together between Michael Caine, Oldman, and Freeman. Like, just the, you know, just their bodies of work in general seem to generate enough clout or awareness where people would gravitate more towards a Batman movie if they had these types of familiar faces peppered throughout them as well. I mean, even Rutger Hauer, people probably didn't know that they knew him from stuff because he hasn't really been, he wasn't really all that active around this time, but I knew him when he popped up. I was like, oh shit, like there's a lot of familiar faces just on display here that are really helping. They're almost like comfort actors in a way because maybe they know that like if this is a bomb, like we're in trouble. So like, let's get some comfortable actors in here to pad it because we're not too sure about our Batman at this point. So like this will definitely raise the pedigree where it's like, oh, well, why are these like very established actors in a 
Batman movie. Like, I thought superhero movies were kind of jokey, but no, it's giving it credibility. I have an answer for that, actually. From what I saw in the behind-the-scenes stuff, he said that he was really inspired by two movies, both kind of uh, relate to things you just said. Um, one, visually, Blade Runner, which, you know, Rucker Hauer, clearly he, he likes that movie. Apparently, he also loves The Hitcher, another Rucker Hauer movie, and I love that Christopher Nolan loves The Hitcher. And also, he said that he was really inspired by the Donner Superman films, and that's why he wanted to have a massive, expansive cast of names that you knew. Like, he saw that, and he was like, fucking Marlon Brando. Like, that gave gravitas to a silly idea, um, and he wanted to uh, incorporate that into his own film. That's super smart. Also considered for Jim Gordon were Kurt Russell, which I think would have been interesting. Mr. Nobody. And uh, Dennis Quaid also would have, like was also Kurt. considered there too. Kurt's maybe a little too gruff. I like Gary Oldman feels a little, in this one, which I think is important, he feels like a guy who, who could spend a lot of time behind a desk. Maybe he's not as street-worn as, as we would hope a Jim Gordon to be at this point, and I think that's important. Kurt Russell feels like he might have fucking kicked Batman's ass at, at a point in this movie, so... <laughs> So in terms of Rachel, I don't know how much – I mean, we already sort of talked about Rachel. We will also say that Rachel gets recast in the next movie with Maggie Gyllenhaal. But Sarah Michelle Gellar and my girl Rachel McAdams were considered for Rachel Dawes, which I think they both would have been good. No. Uh, Sarah Michelle Gellar, again, I think it just is a young – she just kind of yeah. looks a little young to me. I think Rachel McAdams would have been great. I don't really know. Like, I haven't seen Buffy yet, so I don't really know okay. Sarah Michelle Gellar. She kind of sucks as an actress. Well, okay. I've even seen her recently, and she still has very youthful looks. She could still probably play, like, you know, in her 20s or something like that. But I think what they were maybe trying to get away from was the whole sort of Vicky Vale thing where you had Vic, 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 Vicky Vale? Yeah, so that was Kim Basinger, and you know, she was considered extremely glamorous at the time, and so, like, that was a very glamorous role, even though she was playing, like, this gritty, hard-nosed photojournalist who's been in the shit at war zones and stuff. I think they were trying to get away from that sort of, like, blonde bombshell thing for this, where they're just going opposite. So you have the kind of lean brunette district attorney. She's still tough. She's got a very tough job dealing with criminals and everything like that, but ultimately, I just feel like Katie Holmes, the actress, just looks a little too youthful in this rundown, broken world. Not casting people who their biggest career highlight at that point had been on a fucking WB or CW like youth show is probably a good call. Dawson's Creek, it's kind of cool. I'm a fan. <laughs> They're all successful, and Michelle Williams is the, the maybe the, probably the exception to that rule. I would have hated for this to have been a Dawson's Creek reunion, as, as almost happened based on the uh, potential casting, but like, Sarah Michelle Gellar, not, a, not much of an actress. Uh, don't cast TW people. They, there's a fucking reason they didn't put Tom Welling in the new Superman movie, okay? <laughs> Well, also, I mean, I don't want to gloss over the fact that Katie Holmes is also in Keanu Club, The Gift, which classic episode. Two straight episodes of Cinemakers that referenced The Gift. Didn't expect that to happen. I know. So uh, also in terms of Lucius Fox, just going back a second, that David S. Goyer said Morgan Freeman was the only one who could play him. So I guess in his head, he was always going to be Lucius Fox. The only other character I have little casting notes on, and we already talked about him earlier, was Scarecrow, which I think we talked about Celine Murphy is great in this, but also considered for the role Jeremy Davies, who has been in everything. I know him from Lost, specifically, but he's been in so many things. Uh, Ewan McGregor, mm. Christopher Eccleston, who I know from The Leftovers, and the weirdest one, Marilyn Manson. Yeah, that's stunt casting. That's That belongs in part five of the Schumacher, yeah. I couldn't see that. But then again, you know, I've never seen that dude out of makeup try and act normal, so I don't know what his range is like, if he could actually do that. But Marilyn Manson looks like he should be at, like, that motorcycle <laughs> race in Batman and Robin with Coolio hanging out. <laughs> 
Hell yeah. Eccleston, I think, was a Doctor Who. Maybe not at this point. He was. Thinking of that makes me kind of think that David Tennant would have been a really good Scarecrow, but then again, we just, we got him in Jessica Jones basically being a very similar character, so, yeah. But you do need someone, I think, who is more attractive than a lot of those names, except maybe um, Ewan McGregor. The disarming look is important for Scarecrow. There's something very interesting about Cillian Murphy where he comes across very intellectual and smart and like the first time I saw only because I knew he was going to be Scarecrow like I found the way they played it very well like he doesn't come across immediately as a villain like it's not until like the second or third time and you realize like he is a bad guy then you like upon second viewing you're like oh wow like he is a very subtle villain to begin with and then he really just like says screw it and <laughs> lets it rip and starts wearing the mask a lot and all that and and that's just great imagery too is the idea that he's wearing the mask only and it's just whatever sort of street clothes he has on like I, I like that I enjoy that he didn't have to get dressed up like the Wizard of Oz by the end of this and I think it's Rachel says that maybe no one says it maybe it's just kind of implied throughout this trilogy Bruce Wayne is the mask and Batman is is the real face of that human. I think the same can kind of be said for Jonathan Crane, where the Scarecrow, especially by the end, is the, is the true face. Because you, you see him early on, he's wearing a fucking sweater vest, and, and he's got patches on his elbows, and he's like, yeah, that's a prick, but that's not a terrorist. And you expect this kind of fall from grace like you got with Catwoman, or Penguin, or Riddler, or Mr. Freeze, and the old ones. Like, what is their tragedy going to be? And it's just like, no, he is literally actually right now a monster. He's just, when he goes to court, he gets really good at pretending he's not. And Killing Murphy, great job at that. With those beautiful, beautiful, crazy eyes. The only other, it's not a casting thing, the only other thing that, like, the, the sliding doors reality of what this could have been was, and I don't believe, that, based on the rewarding of he turned it down, was that M. Night was considered to write and direct this movie, too. Which, I guess, coming off Sixth Sense and Unbreakable and Signs, this would have been before The Village, probably, so I guess it's conceivable, but at the same time, if they want to do, like, a real fantasy version. I love Unbreakable, so I think after thinking about that a little longer, he could have written a good script for that. I, I think he could have written a good Batman movie. I don't know if he had the strength to direct it, per se. I don't know. I could see him writing it, but not directing it. Since we're on the, the subject of aesthetic choices, how do you like the Batmobile in this movie? I'm very conflicted on it myself. Love it. I, I love, love it. the Tumblr. I love it. I love it. Yeah, I just love the, I love the look of it, the explanation they give for it, you know, like what it actually is as a vehicle, what it was designed for and everything. I just think it's awesome. It's just so outside the realm of anything we've had before. Like, it's not a car. It is like a mini tank. And it's truly like its own thing. And I just think it's really awesome. It also leads to a scene that I don't, not, I don't necessarily forget about, but like if in the scope of Batman action scenes, this is not in the top five, if even the top ten. But the race to bring Rachel to get detoxed, when we finally get to see like the tumbler uncorked or untapped or whatever, it just it's so cool. Like that's such a great scene. I think, like, you know, as the movies go on, especially in The Dark Knight, like, you see everything that can do, you know, spoil alert, but, like, the Tumblr becomes the bat bike, too, and, like, that's crazy cool. But this first scene of, like, not knowing, like, you, you sort of see him, like, you know, in that test track, like, riding around or whatever, but, like, just to see him go down into it and shoot the missiles and, like, see the, the different ways to, like, maneuver around traffic and turn all the lights off and go dark and just, like, all the little gadgets in there that are never explained until they're shown or used, it's just, it's so cool. I just, I love it. But Chris, why are you conflicted about it? Like, what don't you love about it? 
I think I'm just in the minority of it. I love what it can do, and I like the little Q explanation for it. I just, I don't know if I like the tank look. I think maybe it's just because I grew up really loving that 89 Batmobile. Like, this just doesn't look like a Batmobile to me, which I think maybe is intentional, since it's trying to put it in the real world. I know that I'm in the minority of that. I, I think it looks a little, little too bulky, but it does lead to the best uses of a car in a, in a Batman movie, other than um, vertically riding up a statue. I think I love it so much because it's like, it doesn't look like a car, like it's so hard to place, but I I hear you because, you know, I think the 66 version is my all-time favorite, that's just a beautiful machine that they put together, that car, I I love the original Tim Burton one, but one problem I've had with a lot of Batman movies are the Batmobile scenes, they don't feel like they can maneuver the way that they should. And for the first time, I feel like he has a piece of equipment that is actually reacting to what he needs it to do, and he can literally like fly through the air and jump over buildings and stuff, and you're like, yeah, that looks like it can do that. And I wondered if uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger bought one of these, because I just remember when the Hummers came out, he was like the first to get a Hummer, and I'm like, I saw this movie, I was like, oh, I wonder if Arnold's gonna buy one. Nolan apparently envisioned the Tumblr to be a combo of a Lamborghini and a Hummer, so that was basically what it is like it's, it's a sports it's a sports tank essentially and he designed it right like him and his so. brother like in their backyard or just like with cardboard or something they like mocked it up you know what was something i really thought was awesome about this too was the um, the actual bat cave like itself oh yeah i want to talk about this good i'm glad you brought this up i just love the way that he discovers it and realizes like he can use it like what he could do like he could actually turn it into a base of operations you see him putting up the lights i just really love that like it's almost a character or something like it they really give it the treatment like they really do it justice i feel i thought it was cool and it's not like we're ever gonna see a bat cave that is just like overrun with monitors either and i kind of appreciated that too that it's just you know we're just gonna store our shit here like it's our it's our armory it's our garage but like we're not living down here we don't have a shower down here there's no bed like we're clearly gonna go upstairs and eat our meals and stuff so i loved how practical it was and i love that he built it himself that he's there like hanging the lights and you know and even like Alfred's like oh charming like like look how look how great this is now that there's light down here but what's really cool about that is that the entire bat cave was real like there's no visual effects like, that's an actual set so oh sweet that's super cool my question about the bat cave though is it insured does the insurance company know about that? Because, like, when the house burns down, drunken billionaire burns down home, I'm sure that there are millions of dollars in equipment and gadgets and stuff down there. Is that insured, or is that, like, like Bruce Wayne can't deduct Batman stuff as tax expenses, you know what I mean? Because, like, he can't out himself. Like, is that insured, or is that all, like, oh, no, like, it all burned down, like, we got to eat those costs now? Well, if I could put on my tactical realism goggles here. Ooh, okay, go for it. Since it's under the foundation of Wayne Manor, and that's explicitly stated, it's probably not affected by the fire. I'm more concerned with how he's going to rebuild everything and keep his secret. He's going to have to hire blind people to help him. That is true. Or he's going to be like that emperor who hired all these people to build this great tower and then either had their eyes gouged out or had them all murdered so that they couldn't replicate it somewhere else. Um, one thing you said, Joey, about the practical Batcave, they made a big deal, and even at the time, and on a lot of the special features, there's some stuff about this. As much practical effects as possible in this movie, they really tried to not use CGI unless it was absolutely necessary, and they couldn't do it without it, which is maybe why there's just one shot in this movie towards the end of the monorail that kind of doesn't work for me, because it's... It's just jarring. I think in any other movie it would work fine, but just because it's like suddenly CGI, it doesn't. But I just thought it was great that 
we're watching, you know, kind of like an old school made film in the age of shoot everything yeah. in a green stage. Yeah. So that was really cool. Because like, what's what's weird to me in my brain is that I'm watching like Westworld, for instance, and so much of that is CGI. But like CGI is so good that like you don't think about like when people are in a field and there's like a big tree next to them, like most of that's probably CGI. And it's like, oh, like it, it just things that don't have to be still are. And so you're right, like to see things like this that weren't that long ago all shot practically just feels better in just sort of describable and also indescribable ways yeah and then then building some of the behind the scenes features are really cool about the gotham set that they built which was essentially the city as a whole they had like the biggest aircraft hangar in the world that they just built the whole fucking city and it's it's economical like one street will be the main street you'll turn down the street and you're in the narrows you turn down the next street into the back cave but the fact that they had these to work on does make it seem so much more tangible and realistic uh, versus like metropolis from the man of steel movie like where they're just flying through it like everything is made of paper and they commit 12 9 11s every second in that ending fight like it, it doesn't seem like a real place this really does feel like it's on location and it has its own identity because in a lot of ways it is I remember on HBO seeing the behind the scenes stuff and like, yeah, they're up there in the mountains shooting in the cold. They're out there standing on a frozen lake doing sword fights and stuff. So yeah, just on like a subconscious level, it reads and I definitely appreciate that too. One thing that sort of, I guess, ties into the practical effects of it, sort of, but not really, I just sort of want to say it, was that Christian Bale did a bunch of his own stunts for this movie, but apparently was not let anywhere near the Batmobile. So just, hey, you know, this very expensive piece of technology or piece of high tech or whatever, let's steer away from that. But also, I don't know if you remember, but this was the movie that someone drunk driving crashed into the Batmobile in the streets of Chicago, which apparently this was also like a nightmare to film the scenes because like the cops had to clear off so much of the road to like shoot anything. And like, it was apparently like a logistical nightmare to do all this on the actual streets of Chicago, because Gotham is sort of this weird blend of, like, New York and Pittsburgh and Chicago and sort of all those places and none of those places. I read that, like, Christopher Nolan described it as New York City on steroids, but I think they shot most of it in Chicago, and apparently it was just, like, a nightmare to get this very big, very expensive, very fast car to film through the streets because there was so much, like, blocking off that they had to do. I wonder if that's why they go with the bat pod in the next two movies. It's easier to shoot, maybe, or something. But, I mean, they do, they double down on their street warfare in the next movie, too. So, they're not afraid of difficult work in these movies. And I think that's another thing that comes through is like, you really have to push yourself to make a movie this good, I feel like. They're not half assing it, basically. Like, everything feels like it's treated with like the utmost care and thought through to the bitter end. And they've just gone over this to, until they knew it worked and yeah I mean dare I say like I don't get that feeling from every movie and I wish I could and I'm glad I do with a Batman movie and that's just very reassuring well I think some of that comes from the fact that apparently Nolan did not have an away team like there was no crew out there somewhere shooting b-roll he was behind the camera for everything even the stunt stuff that he couldn't directly like manipulate the camera for like a driving scene like he was still on set for it 129 days of shooting. Yeah, Nolan really took this movie, I want to say, under his wing. Under his bat wing. I guess that's where I'm going to go with it. Yeah, because, uh, like, it is. He He's even directing the insert shots and stuff like that. Like, that's dedication. That's knowing that you've been given an opportunity and 
making sure that there's no questions. Like if it's going to fail, it's going to fail on you. If it's going to succeed, it's because you took the reins and you believed in it all of the way. Like this is truly his movie. And it works. And I think that's maybe a good place to wrap this up because unless you guys have other stuff, because I think the idea of cinemakers, when Mike and I had this idea was to like only pick directors who are sort of in a sense like auteurs, the men and women who like write and direct their own movies, who really have control over it. And you can see that here. Like this is his vision for not just this movie, but this trilogy, its success or its failure lived and died on its sho- on his shoulders. And like he shouldered all of the burden, all the responsibility. And I think this as a follow-up to Soderbergh, who also did the same kind of thing, it just proves like these are very interesting, fascinating guys in an era where I think it's more collaborative. Like I think, Chris, weren't we talking about this like a week or two ago about like how collaborative making a movie is? Like you can't really blame or credit one specific person because so many people get their hands on it. But like I think in an era where that's more and more true, people like Steven Soderbergh or Christopher Nolan are singularly unique people in that they do have so much control and that a movie, you either go see it because they did it or like you praise them when it works or you criticize them when it doesn't because they have such a level of command and control and ownership in their projects, which I think makes doing this kind of thing for these directors worthwhile because it's them. It's not a team. Like there are people who are helping him, but along the way, like it's mostly, if not almost entirely him. Yeah. And I almost wonder, that's almost like a good metaphor for being Batman too. You're like he is the Batman in this but it's like he's not just making the movie alone like his name is on the front and on the and everything and he is the director but like he's the front man of the group but it's the entire team around him that's really helping him out and everything and i think that he knows that and he works with others it seems like he works with others extremely well one thing is just like from this point on batman will just catapult him like overnight people are going to know christopher nolan's name and he is just going to be among the a-list directors from now on which is just incredible like you pull off Batman and everybody has faith in you. Um, I think that's just great. It's not a fluke either, I think, because this character in this world aligns with a lot of his sensibilities, like up until this point. Like we've seen a lot of this stuff already in some of his movies been explored. I mean, Raja Ghoul is motivated by a dead wife for crying out loud. He's going back to the well again to dip, but like he's presenting it all in his way. And that is a new and unique way. You know, we've seen Batman before, but we've never seen the origin and we've never seen it told out of sequence either. Like, I feel like that is very new for sort of superhero genre in general. We even get a flashback within a flashback in this movie too. So it's just really great that he is able to find a mainstream property that he could work with and that he could apply everything to make a really great Batman film. I'm really glad that he was given the chance or that he took the chance and he pulled it off. Any other thoughts about Batman Begins before we spend another two hours and two weeks talking about The Dark Knight and then another two hours and two more weeks talking about The Dark Knight Rises? No, I'm backpacking all my political stuff until I can kind of tie it into uh, one general thought. But uh, other than to say, I think this has maybe the most interesting attack on Gotham that we've seen in any of the Batman movies thus far. And I mean, interesting from like a villainous perspective. It's usually very cartoony, like freeze the world or shoot rockets off of penguins. But I I think this one is really fascinating in a lot of ways that I will go into in more detail later down the line. And I do love how it ties in the fear toxin coming from the League of Shadows going to Scarecrow for him to do his own kind of micro-terrorism and then 
swinging back around. Like, we just, we didn't really talk about the plot of this movie a lot because there's a lot to get into in regards to the whole trilogy, like the cast and the design and Nolan in general. But it's just, you know, that shit holds up. It's a really tight, well-done three-act structure, even if it's not entirely linear. And it's, yeah, it's just, it's tight. It's a really tight, well-made script, and that is something else that Nolan will be known for throughout his career. And it shows here even in a dumb genre pick, as I've said before. And... Uh, just just real quick, just talking about like the villains and the attacks, like I love that this sets up the Dark Knight with that Joker card at the end from whichever graphic novel I'm trying I'm forgetting right now, either from Arkham Asylum, maybe the graphic novel or maybe the long Halloween. Yeah, I think it's year one. Is there a year one? That it's just like, because even if like there was never a movie like after this, it could be like, oh, like I know what the next movie's going to be. And it's just cool that there's like this confidence. It doesn't feel like, hey, like let's introduce Spider-Man so that he can have his own movie or whatever. It's just like a, hey, you want to know what's coming next? Like you got three years to think about it or whatever. Like it's not, hey, we're going to set up a Jared Leto standalone Joker movie. So like here's a joke cameo or whatever. It's like a, you like this, like just stick around because we're going to blow your fucking mind with the next movie i got goosebumps this time watching that sequence it gave me chills just how great it was because it even just says like if you want more go to your local comic shop and read some batman you know like it just gets you so pumped for more and uh even if they never delivered on that i remember a lot of people talking about well this could lead into the 1989 batman pretty clean you know if you really had to it's almost like a post-credit scene before they were in vogue, right? Like, it's just a little tag in the end, a little cliffhanger to keep you, like, wanting more. But the last thing I want to talk about quickly that we haven't mentioned at all is the score. Because oh, yeah. I never thought that we would get anything more exciting than the Danny Elfman score. But this, again, every time just moves me and just gets to me. It's and so I love good. this score. And I feel like Hans Zimmer has become a punchline. And not necessarily a punchline punchline, but, like, the type of music. Like, I, when I was living with my parents while I was saving up money to buy Cage Club HQ, I could tell that my dad was listening to, or watch, not listening to, but watching Justice League or Batman vs. Superman because, like, the, the score is just so that. Like, it's so heavy and just like this, but without the subtlety and without some of the beauty of it. And I think that, you know, Hans Zimmer's going to stick with Christopher Nolan. He's going to do Inception. and He's got that, like, the wah-wah and, like, that people make fun of that. But, like, here, like, where it's just, like, it's it feels new and it feels fresh and it just feels right for this movie. It's just so good. And I wish, you know, people can make fun of whoever they want to make fun of, like whatever you want to like. But if you make fun of Hans Zimmer, like, listen to the score because it's so good. Nolan's use of music and score is one of the things that initially made me compare him to Spielberg um, way back on that first episode. I don't know if I explicitly said this in general, but it ties into that emo emotional mathematician idea. He just, he uses those strings to evoke... A feeling like the scene where again I talk a lot about this movie having these kind of fortune cookie lines but uh, one of my favorite ones is where Jim Gordon's like hey I never got to thank you and he's like oh well you will never have to and then the, the strings swell up and I think that might even be the cut to the credits and it all works together to pull exactly the feeling that Nolan knew he wanted to get out of the audience he's so good at that and Hans Zimmer he's an integral part of Nolan being able to make you feel so strongly towards his movies. We're going to talk about it when we talk about The Dark Knight in two weeks, but again, the way that that movie ends with Gordon giving, like, the... He's the hero we need, but not the one we deserve right now, or that, that entire closing speech where, like, the, the score builds and builds and builds, and we see Batman ride off on the bat cycle into the night, and, like, it crashes into the credits. Like, just thinking about that, like, gives me chills now, because it's like, the scores are just so 
good and like it's just it's perfect it's it i i don't have anything else to say other than just to gush about it and just to say how much i like it i'm just really excited to get into what's ahead because dark knight inception dark knight rises i have not seen in some time of the nolan movies from before my season of cinemakers i think other than begins which i just saw the prestige is maybe the one i've most recently seen other than actually seeing interstellar like one i've seen a second time yeah, for me, it, I just caught the prestige not too long ago, and so like this is we're we're hitting a gap of movies. I'm so fucking excited to rewatch and talk about. Yeah, I think actually the prestige, aside from maybe Dark Knight, prestige might be the Nolan movie I've seen the most times. There was a period when it came out on DVD where I watched this movie a lot. Like I was just like captivated by this film for so long, and and I still love it. So I'm really excited. This has been a lot of fun so far. The more I think about like what we're doing here, the more I'm like, why don't we just do this for more? podcast like why don't we just talk about like good movies like we do so many of our podcasts it's based around following you know an actor through the highs and lows and most movies are bad but like when you find a director that makes the movies that you want to see doing this makes me want to jump right into like doing the Wachowskis or doing like Tarantino or doing like David Fincher or doing Catherine Bigelow or whoever like there's just so many people out there that I'm like oh I love all of their movies or almost all their movies and I'd rather talk about those than The Gift and The Watcher again you know what I mean? Like, it's just, you know, we have that pact, Mike, you, me, and Tobin. Like, let's just watch good movies. Like, let's just podcast about good movies. That should be the title. Let's just watch good movies. I mean, that is what we'd be doing. Oh, man. But anyway, for all things Cinemakers and all things of all the other podcasts that we said, including all the terrible movies that we've watched, you can go to cageclub.me, facebook.com slash cageclub, or at cageclubpod on Twitter and Instagram. Go to cageclub.me, sign up for our monthly newsletter. Keep in the know of all the highs and lows, and mostly highs, hopefully, of what we're doing here on the network. There's new shows all the time. There's new episodes every day, just about. So go there, sign up for the newsletter, stay in touch. Email us, cinemakers at cageclub.me. You know, after we finish up Christopher Nolan, we're going to do like another one-off episode then follow it up with another director at some point. You know, we're always going to keep going. And then if we're going to do what we did for Soderbergh and just keep that going, whenever Christopher Nolan puts out a new movie every two or three years, we'll bring Chris back and we'll do another one of these. So this will never die. I like doing this so much. I'm glad that Chris is here for the ride with us because this is so much fun. I hope that you're listening. I hope you're enjoying. Go to cageclub.me. Just find out what else we're doing. We've all got other shows. Just go check them out. I'm Joey Lewandowski. I'm Mike Manzi. I'm Chris Patty. We'll see you next time on Cinemakers.